Now, some of you must be thinking, all Korean-American pastors must have the name Peter. <laughs> I assure you, it's a mere coincidence. Um, glad to be with you this morning with, uh, in bringing God's word to you. If you have your Bible, please open to Psalm 133, a very familiar passage. I would like to uh, read from this passage. Psalm 133. A song of ascent of David. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer as we turn to God for his blessings this morning? Our gracious God in heaven, we as your children, now open your holy word and come before your throne, O God. We pray that your Holy Spirit be our teacher and enable us to receive your word that it might continually transform our lives, both individually and corporately. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Psalm 133. We're told that it is a song of ascents. A song of ascents. As some of you may know, there are 15 psalms, starting with Psalm 120, going to Psalm 134, that are designated as songs of ascents. Now, they're called songs of ascents because these 15 songs were particularly designated to be sung by God's people as they would obediently follow God's commandment to gather at the temple of Jerusalem, which is situated in the city of Jerusalem, which is at the very top of the mountain. And so three, four times a year, for instance, around Passover, thousands of God's people will be gathered at the base of the mountain And as they go up that mountain to worship God together, they will be singing this 15 psalms. And that's why it's called a song of ascent, going up. Now, imagine that you are there among this multitude. Thousands of people gathered, and now they're beginning to go up that hill singing this song. As you look around, you'll find that some are older and some are younger, men and women. And just based on how they're dressed, you could tell some are wealthier and some not. And then there might be some faces around you that you recognize because they may be coming from your your, your extended family or perhaps they belong to the same tribe that you do. But the vast majority of the folks are strangers to you. You don't know their names. You don't know who they are. And yet, as you go up on that hill, singing this song, there is a sense of oneness or unity that this song is celebrating. Now, this unity is not so much about your shared experience at that moment that bring that sense of unity together. For instance, it does not say, How good and pleasant it is when traveling companions travel together. 
That's not the language here. But instead, this psalm is deliberately using a language of family. Brothers, sisters. Or another translation, the kindred. We are strangers, to be sure. But because we worship same God, and because we belong to that same God, there is a sense of this deep unity this psalm is celebrating. And then this theme becomes even more deepened and profound when we go into New Testament. If you would open your Bible to New Testament, and I'm thinking particularly of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. As you know, Ephesians is an epistle that Apostle Paul uses where he richly gives out the doctrine of the church. And then he comes to chapter 2, And he focuses on what Christ our Savior has accomplished on the cross. Now, verses 1 through 10, Apostle Paul reminds uh, Ephesian Christians that Christ, when he died on the cross, he reconciled you with God above, that vertical reconciliation. But then starting verse 11, he focuses on another dimension of a reconciliation that Christ has accomplished on the cross, and this time it's a horizontal one. So I want to read with you, starting verse 14 and to verse 19. And I'm reading from NIV. For he, that is Christ, himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier. The two here he's referring to are the two groups of communities in a church, the Jews and the Gentiles. The dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, here is a significant transition that just happened between Psalm 133 and this passage. In Psalm 133, the sense of oneness that the people were celebrating was, yes, they may be coming from different tribes, but most likely they're all Israelites. They're all Jews. That's what they are celebrating. But then we come to Ephesians chapter 2. It's no longer just Jews who are part of that group, part of that family. But now the Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, who are coming from all different ethnic and cultural backgrounds are now identified as a part of a family. Now, here's the rub. You see, in the society at that time and in the church, there is a quite a bit of a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, there are many public records that show that Roman governors often had to intervene with their military to break up the fights that would often happen between the Jews and Gentiles in the Roman Empire. 
And part of it was growing anti-Semitism that would rear its ugly head at different places. But the other part was that Jews often looked at very condescendingly toward Gentiles. For instance, in their regular prayers, whether it be individual or corporate, they would regularly offer thanksgiving to God that they were born as a Jew and not as Gentiles. Just so think, if you're a Gentile overhearing that prayer, how you would feel definitely a second-class citizen in terms of spiritual realm. But then often that same mindset came into the church when Gentiles and Jews both became Christians and now they're part of the church. And yet, that centuries of old mindset that often Jews had toward Gentiles continue to operate, therefore creating a huge conflict and disagreement between these two groups of people. And Apostle Paul is saying, you know what? When Jesus died on the cross, he did not just reconcile us with God above, but Jesus also broke down those walls and barriers between Jews and Gentiles. And then he goes to verse 19, where he says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You Gentiles, in the past, you saw yourself as a people outside of the faith community of Israelites. But now, because of what Christ has done on the cross, you belong to the same family, oikos, household, as Jews do. And this is the truth that Apostle Paul I think is challenging, particularly Jewish Christians and Gentiles. You may get to choose who your friends are going to be, but you don't get to choose who your brothers or sisters are going to be. Because we belong to same God, and because we worship same God, and because we became new creation through the same work of cross of Jesus, Now, we're not merely traveling companions. We're not merely friends. But we belong to the same oikos, same household, same family. That's what Psalm 133 is celebrating. That's what Ephesians 2 is lifting up as a truth. Brothers and sisters, when we gather together as a worship community, Know that we're not just traveling companions whose life intersects time to time. We're not just good friends. We're getting to know each other and and enjoying this gift of diversity. But today's passage celebrates the fact that, yes, we may be still strangers in terms of not knowing each other's name or the backgrounds you come from, but the reality, the truth that this psalm celebrates is that you are brothers and sisters dwelling in unity how good and pleasant it is before God's eyes. Now, why is this such a blessing? And this is where this psalm unpacks in two ways. What are the things to be celebrating about? And verse 2 and 3, we want to briefly look at together. Psalm 133, going back to it, verse 
2. Let me first find my place. Psalm 130, verse 33, verse 2. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Okay, for today's readers, this, this does not sound like a blessing. I mean, what, what is this all about? I mean, we live in a time when we spend money like shampoo and conditioners to get oil out of our hair. But this is a picture of just drenching of a head with some kind of oil and it's just dripping down. Of course, ancient Israelites knew immediately what this is referencing. And it goes to Exodus chapter 29. Where Moses, following God's commandment, sets aside Aaron and his sons to serve as God's priests. To serve as God's chosen servants. To do God's work. And pouring the oil upon them was an act of cleansing, sanctifying, act of consecrating them. Setting them aside so that they can be used for God's purpose. So, if God's people from all different backgrounds come together and dwell together in unity, this passage is celebrating and promising, that somehow in that midst, God would do the work of cleansing, transforming, setting aside, so that you and I as individuals as well as corporate community, that we might be able to be used by God's purpose, God's spirit, to do some significant work of God. How does dwelling together in unity and setting us aside for God's purpose, how do those things really connect is the question. And this is where I've been tremendously helped by a Croatian-American theologian named Miroslav Volf, when he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. When that book first came out, Christianity Today declared it as the book of the year. It's a very significant work of theology, which particularly look at unity and diversity and why that is a significant kingdom work and mark. And it is in that book, Miroslav Volf, if I were to boil down that 300-page paper or a book, he makes this argument, and that is this. When we become born-again Christian, when we become new creation in Christ, Holy Spirit comes and begins to dwell in us. And through that power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to have a new relationship with our God above. And through that power of Holy Spirit, we begin to imitate our Heavenly Father more. And we become more God-like. And often theologians use the term sanctification to talk about that. But then Wolf makes another insight that, that has been very helpful to me, and that is this. And you know what? Our horizontal relationship with others begin to also change profoundly because the power of the Holy Spirit and that relationship begin to change each of us profoundly as well. So to perhaps use a theological language, sanctification is not just vertical process, but it also has a horizontal dimension to it as well. 
And this is what he says. You know, when we become a Christian, we are no longer blindly captive to my own ethnic culture or my own racial groups, loyalty, so forth. But instead, when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us, we begin to see certain things about my culture, about my ethnicity, about my race group. That is not all good, but there are certain things about it that can be quite dysfunctional, that can be, in fact, kind of sinful, if not demonic. Because every culture has a redemptive good parts to it, to be sure, and theologians call that God's common grace. But every culture also has a dark side. And I could name dozens of things about my culture. That is not affirmable scripturally. And Volpe is saying, when you become a new creation in Christ, you begin to look at your own culture more critically. Appreciating good things about it and giving thanks to God for it. But identifying certain things in my culture that I need to distance myself from or rebuke against if I were to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And then he says, that critical appreciation and distancing between myself and my culture, and and please hear me right here, in that what he's not saying and what I'm not saying is that we need to reject all our culture, our ethnic racial background. That's not what, what Wolf is saying. But instead, creating that critical distancing that enables you to appreciate good things about it, but then at the same time being able to name and reject those things that are going against scriptural teaching. And as we do that, it creates now new space on each of us to now appropriate some wonderful kingdom values and practices from other cultures. And this is where he introduces this, what I think is a very helpful spiritual practice of embracing others. Remember his book title, Exclusion and Embrace? And he believes that our lifelong discipleship, particularly when we're in a community that's surrounded by people who are coming from different backgrounds, we have now possibility and ability to embrace others. Others being those who come from very different social economic, cultural ethnic, racial, gender backgrounds, right? But in describing that, he gives us two concrete pictures, and that is this. He said, in order to embrace another person, you got to first start by opening your arms, right? You cannot embrace another person if you do this. Remember earlier, Pastor Michael said, you know, exchange hugs and handshakes, and if someone is doing this, then just move on, right? (laughs) That was about, you cannot hug another person if you do this. You got to open your arms. But then, Wolf says, when you are opening your arm toward another person who come from different backgrounds, it signifies two postures on your side. First is that of humility. Basically, it's your way of saying, I by myself, Or we, as a people group by ourselves, we are not complete. 
And so I want to invite you, because you are different than I am, into my life to bring those gifts that I do not currently have. It's a posture of humility. Your incompleteness is acknowledged. But then secondly, he says, when you open your arm to a stranger like this, it's also speaking about your willingness to be vulnerable, willing to take a risk in this act of embracing. Because think about it, self-protecting presence is more this. This, on the other hand, is a posture of openness that could open you to some serious hurting as well. Embracing others requires both humility and willing to be vulnerable and willing to take a risk, right? That's opening of arms. But then, second act, is to now bring your arm gently around the other person because that's, after all, what embracing is about. But then at that point, again, Miroslav Volf raises an insight that is very helpful, and he says this. Human nature being what it is universally, our tendency at that point is to give the other person what he calls oppressive hug of assimilation. Oppressive bear hug of assimilation, okay? And it simply means this. Yes, I will have you in my life, but as long as you share exactly the same values I do, you share the same political ideology that I do, and you worship the way I do, I mean, as long as you are willing to do that, Yes, you can be part of my life. And it's at that point, Wolf says, that's not kingdom embracing. That's another act of forcing the assimilation of others to be just like you, whether you being individual or corporate community. And he says, as Christians, we learn to embrace other Christians who come from other backgrounds, whether that otherness is socioeconomic or race or ethnicity, culture, educational backgrounds, embracing of others would gradually change us and enable us to become more and more kingdom citizens. Last several years, in, in God's good grace, uh, on our campus, we started initially a very small gathering of students who come from very different racial, ethnic, cultural backgrounds to come together to learn how to talk about critical issues of today, like Black Lives Matter, immigration reform issues, relating to religious others, particularly Muslims, and how do we talk about uh, the, the human sexuality and other controversial issues as a reconciled community of God's people. But given that we all come from different backgrounds, how do we not just engage in another combative, right, discussion where there are winners and losers, but how do we embrace one another? Now, that movement has grown now every Wednesday 
we have anywhere between 80 to 100 students, faculty, and staff come together to talk about this this very challenging issues that often are very divisive, but how do we talk about it in such a way that I am not talking about just Korean-American male, but I can hear and I could talk about it as I become more embracing of others and as I become more of a kingdom citizen, how do I understand the hurts of my African-American brothers and sisters, the fear of my Hispanic brothers and sisters as a kingdom citizen, How do we hear and talk about this? Now, uh, Pastor Peter and Professor Michael Emerson came and uh, spoke at that gathering. It's a, a space where we're trying to practice what this psalm is celebrating. Now, one of the earlier leaders of that gathering, a student leader, was an African-American uh, brother named Charlie Dates, was one of our students. He was our student leader of a mosaic, and he was very instrumental in shaping that space. And then he got a call to be, he's originally from Southside Chicago, and he got called to return to Southside Chicago as a lead pastor of a predominantly black church. But as he was leaving, he was sharing with the mosaic community about his own experience there, and he ended his sharing by saying this, this unique kingdom experience of learning to listen to each other who are coming from such a different backgrounds and learning to become that kingdom citizen that Wolf talks about. This experience, he said, has ruined me for life. It was his way of saying, yes, I'm going back to predominantly black church, but now I cannot be content if Ministry of that black congregation is again narrowly defined by its racial identity. How do I think more kingdomly about, yes, as an African-American church, to do God's work in this very divided city of Chicago? I don't know about you. That kind of ruining, I think it's a good thing. It, it is that thing that this verse is celebrating. That somehow as we come to learn to dwell together in unity, God would use those rich experiences to reshape each of us so that we could be used for God's purpose in today's such a divided, broken world. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if that's how you think about one of the blessings of being part of a community like this one. embracing intentionally others. The work of the Holy Spirit that you participate in by embracing others in such a way, not assimilation bear hug, but what you have is so different than what I have, and I see some goodness in that, and I want that to be part of who I am, who we are. Then let me go to the third one. And verse 3, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Again, it's an Old Testament imagery that, that needs uh, some background help to understand that particular blessing. 
I have not had the pleasure of being in a holy land, so I've not visited the land of Israel. But if you do, they say it is on the whole, the whole vast landscape is very arid and desert-like, with exception of rain season. So, most of the Israelites live in a very desert-like landscape with a very few vegetations around. Except when you turn your eyes toward north, there is a mountain called Mount Hermon toward the Syria. And because that mountain is so tall, on the top section of that mountain, there is always daily generous dew falling. And because of that, that Mount Hermon, from the very far away, you can see that it's filled with green vegetation. It's a green mountain. that you're gazing at. So you may be living and working in a very brown, you know, lacking uh, uh, vegetation all around and very dry, arid land, but you look at north, there is a mountain that, that symbolizes the full and abundant life. The living plants, green, vitality, that's what you see. And this is what that psalm, psalmist is talking about. When God's people, bunch of strangers, come together and dwell in unity, somehow people who are far away would look into that community and say, what do they have that we don't have out here? There is something about that life together in that community that is so fundamentally different than what's all around the society. What is that life all about? What is its source? In 1993, uh, as uh, Pastor Peter, uh, when he was introduced to me, remarked that I served as an InnoVarsity staff worker in the Chicago area. In 1993, there was an Urbana Mission Convention, as some of you know, that's that large gathering that brings together anywhere between 18,000 to 20,000 college students, usually from the United States and Canada, to consider God's call for missions. And that particular Urbana 93, they invited, they usually invited university staff workers to give a plenary talk. And, and that year, it was, they invited me to be one of the plenary speakers. But this was 1993, and we were still recovering from, many of you remember, Los Angeles riot of 1993. What happened there basically deeply impacted our campus ministries and many campuses. And partly, those of us who come from Korean-American background, we were now thrown into this ongoing urban drama of conflicts and racial conflicts. Because you remember how that early uh, part of the L.A. riot was framed was that it was a growing conflict between Korean-American merchants and a black city residents, right? And so, you know, at that Urbana 93, uh, as a Korean-American person, I brought uh, God's message that really calling Asian-American and African-American students and staff workers to, to demonstrate God's reconciliation in our midst. What I did not know and found out later is that that particular Urbana, the Church of Japan sent one of the largest delegates of their college and young adults to Urbana that particular year. Because as some of you may know, Japan has been historically one of the countries that were most closed 
to the work of the gospel. In fact, even today, less than 0.5% of Japanese residents go to some kind of church regularly. So that particular Urbana, Japan church, church in Japan, invested in some finances and sent somewhere between 30 to 40 Japanese young college and young adult Christian leaders to Urbana. And they came and they heard a Korean-American speaker, meaning me, talking about and asking God's people to participate in a work of reconciliation. Now, this was a time when nation of Japan was having more and more conflict with surrounding countries, including Korea and China. And as many of you know from modern history, Japan had colonized a good part of East Asia and then committed some kind of, I mean, many atrocities against many people groups. And it was around that time in late 1980s and early 90s, a particular narrative of just significant number of victims began to come forward. And now we call that whole experience comfort women a phenomenon. What happened apparently before World War II and during World War II was that the Japanese Imperial Army recruited, often forcefully, somewhere between 100 and 200,000 Korean women high school students. And then took them to different places in Pacific War Front and forced them to engage in sexual slavery for their army officers and soldiers. Think about it, 100 to 200,000 young girls were taken away. Many were often forced to have anywhere between 30 to 40 sexual partners per day. When the war ended, only 25% or so of those young women survived the ordeal. And then when they came back, because of the deep sense of shame that they had, they did not talk to their family about this. They did not tell this to their future husbands. It was basically kept under a secret. And then during 1980s, as many of these women are now passing away, many begin to speak out. And they would tell the newspaper reporters and so forth. And so this comfort women's story was just bubbling up. And initially, Japanese government denied it all. This is just sensationalist stories. Some newspaper reporters want to sell their stories and make money and so forth. But it began to be very clear this thing really did happen. So you could only imagine how that just stoked even deeper anger among Koreans against Japan. Well, it was around that time we had Urbana 93. And these Japanese delegates who were there While I spoke of Korean and black conflict, what the Holy Spirit was convicting them about was that they need to somehow, as Japanese Christians, be more proactive in reconciling with Korean and Chinese Christians and ask for their forgiveness. Now, Urbana ended, but then apparently after Urbana, those who came from international other countries met two more days to debrief what they heard at Urbana. 
And I was not there, but this is a story that I heard from other staff workers who were there later. On that final day of debriefing, Japanese delegates came to the moderator who was running that meeting if they could have 10 minutes of morning session time. Now, this moderator did not know what this was about, but decided to grant that. And there was altogether about 200 or so international delegates were there. And when, when that 10-minute time came, a spokeswoman representing Japanese delegates, a woman, came up with a prepared statement and then gave a signal. And when that happened, 30 or 40 Japanese delegates all stood up. And then, let's imagine this is the assembly hall. They went to the, around the walls of that room. And then this woman said, would Korean delegates who are here please stand? And apparently there were 15 or 20 who were there, so they stood up. And then this woman began to read a prepared statement that basically says something like, we as a people have committed some of the unspeakable atrocities against Korea and, and, and China and other nations. And our government is not owning up to what we have done. And instead of writing an apology, what they are doing at that time was that they were in fact beginning to revise the history, presenting Japan as sort of like a protector of Asian countries against European colonialism. So they're basically saying Japan was a good guy and that you should be thankful for the role that we had played. It's a complete revising of a history that, and so this uh, woman said, we are so sorry, not only for what we have done during 1930s and 40s, but what our government is continually doing. And we want to ask from our Korean brothers and sisters who are here, in the name of Christ, that you would forgive us, you will forgive our government, and that you would forgive our church for not speaking up more forcefully when these things were happening. And as she ended her statement, this 30 or 40 delegates all basically dropped to the floor, and it's Japanese cultural practice that when they are asking for someone's forgiveness in most sincerity, you would just drop to the floor and bow toward them. It's very sort of grave expression of deep sorrow, and we want your forgiveness. I was told, not just Koreans, but everyone in that room, they were just stunned, not only by that statement, but that, that, that bow of uh, for asking for forgiveness, and there was no sort of dry eyes in that room. Now, providentially, the closing worship session, which was to take place right after that, was supposed to be led by Korean worship band. So after that moment is done, now the Korean worship team went up, and one of the worship leaders stepped forward and said this, you know, I want to express just heartfelt thanks to our Japanese brothers and sisters for your deep sense of uh, uh, need for forgiveness and, and asking for forgiveness and in Christ's name we forgive you but having said that we as Christians also want to ask Japanese Christians 
for your forgiveness. And then he said something like this. Not just Korean people in the society, but Korean people in the church have held this deep grudge and hatred against Japanese. And often Christians would think and say, you know, there is a reason why Japan, Christianity and the church in Japan is not growing. They're facing God's judgment. in some ways kind of celebrating the fact that Japanese Christianity is continually facing challenges. And he named that and asked for Japanese Christians to forgive them. Both the oppressor and oppressed, both fallen human beings, naming those things that they have held against each other. Well, that night, they decided to come together just for sort of a brief time of a fellowship. But that brief time of fellowship apparently turned into all-night time of a prayer, praise, and a rich fellowship, ended sometime in a five or six in the morning. But out of that all-night time of a deep fellowship, what came out was their equal conviction that what we experience here cannot end here, And somehow God can use this deep form of reconciliation for God's purpose. And so out of that desire came out a new organization called Korea-Japan Christian Fellowship. And it continued years after that, and its main function was to do this, to invite Korean university Christian students to Japan, and then these Korean college Christian students will get paired up with the Japanese Christian students and going to college campuses to talk about Jesus. Now, when these Japanese college students who are not Christians find out that one of the pair is Korean, remember, this was a time when the, when the tension between two countries was just extremely heightened. They would often ask the question, wait a minute, you're Korean. Why are you here? Don't you hate us? And that would provide a new space or opportunity to talk about why these Korean students paired up with Japanese Christian students are talking about the good news, about the Savior, about the work of the gospel. I don't know about you, but this presidential campaign rhetorics has been extremely disheartening one for me to hear. Yes, as a Christian, but also as a citizen of this nation, just this, this campaign rhetorics has brought forward, making it even more explicit, all the tensions and barriers and walls that are existing among different people groups. Socioeconomically, there's a 1% versus 99%, whatever that means. Racially, deeply divided between the whites and then various other non-white groups. The religious others being demonized. I mean, all these fragmentations and deep sense of distrust and hatred 
It is indeed a very challenging time for our nation. But as I think about this, I think about what happened at Urbana 93. In our society right now, whether it be organization or at the societal level, I think the highest bar we can set in terms of how do we do unity and diversity thing, it's tolerance. Hey, let's tolerate each other. But tolerance is not a high bar. What the gospel of Christ and what this Psalm 133 celebrates is a deep sense of unity among God's people achieved through the work of reconciliation that Christ has done. And now we have an opportunity as a Christian communities to live out that power and that demonstration. That would be like a dew on the Mount Hermon, falling daily, so that people afar, they may be living in and working in a setting where they can't find any signs of life, but they look at Mount Hermon and say, wow, look at that green mountain. There's a life abundant, vitality that we cannot find here, but there it is. A clear witnessing of God's power and God's blessing for his people. May that be the continuing witnessing power of Newcom Covenant Church. May that be the thing that would give a sense of hope, not only to us, but people outside. And may that be the thing when our God looks at us and says, how good and pleasant it is when my children dwell in unity. Let's pray. As we pray, I want you to just ask God's Holy Spirit to, to work in your heart. As you belong to this community, a community of people who come from so many different backgrounds. Who are some individuals or people groups that God is tugging at your heart to take that step, that practice of embracing, opening your arm toward them or him or her, and gently bringing that arm around him or her or them in such a way that their inclusion in your life, Holy Spirit will use to enable you to become more and more of a kingdom citizen. And that how we become transformed that way, that the people outside will be able to see this community and see the life abundant, life so vital. Relationship that goes far beyond tolerance to a deep sense of reconciliation. Let's spend a couple minutes praying and then I'll close at the time of prayer. Father in heaven, we, we acknowledge that we do live in a world that is so deeply fragmented and broken. Well, people groups across all dimensions and 
lines are deeply distrustful with one another. We live in this land, Lord. And yet at the same time, we are hopeful because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that you have reconciled us not only to you vertically, but also reconciled with one another. And Father, it is our prayer that we as a community and that we as individual followers of Jesus, that we be able to live out this power of the gospel in our lives, both individually and corporately. Lord Jesus, on the night before your arrest, you prayed for your future church, and you passionately prayed that your followers may become one so that the world will know that you were indeed sent by God above. Lord, times such as this, we, we desire and we would like to live out that power of reconciliation in our community, in our city, and in our nation. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us strength and wisdom, that we may know how to be good stewards of this gift of reconciliation you have given us. We are thankful, O oh God, that because of you, our Father, that we are able to enjoy this relationship with one another as a fellow brothers and sisters. It is indeed gift from you, O oh God. And as we now move into our time of offering, we want to give you thanks for all the blessings you have given to us, including in our finances and other resources. Lord, all good gifts indeed come from you. And now as an expression of our gratitude, we would like to offer you our uh, offering with thanksgiving. We pray, O oh God, that you would use these small resources to bless it and to use it for your kingdom purpose. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus.